Hello, everyone, and welcome to episode 86. This is a big one because it is our final episode before our hiatus. We are UConn 360. We're the only podcast ever created by human beings. It covers the University of Connecticut from every conceivable angle. Coming to you one last time from the three corners of Connecticut. My name is Tom Breen. I'm your facilitator of sorts. And joining me are my colleagues, Julie Bartuka. Hello. And Ken Best. We're all here. The three musketeers. We made it, everybody. 86 episodes going back to February of 2018. This uh, this podcast has taken us across the continental United States. It has, actually. Uh, it's, it's won awards. We've helped other universities launch their podcasts. So I'd like to think we've uh, we've made a little uh, little um, impact on the world. A little impact, but we're not going we're not going for good. You no, make it sound not. like goodbye. It's just see you later. Uh, it, it is, but uh, when we come back, who knows what configuration will be? Maybe it'll be like a terrible after mash where there's only like one original <laughs> cast member, and it's like new <laughs> face, new actors who aren't as good. There's a good reference. There's a there's a really uh, current. Current like a reference. new, like a new Darren from Bewitched. I can go even further back if you want. <laughs> I like, I like the Bewitched reference. That's a good one. But we, we will be on WHUS uh, for the summer on on Fridays at eleven o'clock. At least you I really think it'll miss be us, o'clock. and you don't want to go into your podcast app, and you want to hear us on the radio. That's right. Go there. But uh, enough, enough reminiscing. We've still got, we still got hot, fresh news to talk about we here do. at the University of Connecticut. Why don't we, uh, why don't we get the ball rolling, Julie? Why don't you uh, tell us what you. Uh, you found new and noteworthy this week. New and noteworthy this week is that Jason Irizarry has been named Dean of the NEAG School of Education for a five-year term, and he will be the first Latino Dean to lead the school. Previously, Irizarry served as Associate Dean for Academic Affairs, and he's also a professor in the Department of Curriculum. He first began his career at UConn in 2005 as a postdoctoral fellow with the Teachers for a New Era project and as a faculty member from 06 to 2013. He then served as Director of Urban Education at the University of Massachusetts from 2013 to 2016 and returned to the NEAG School faculty that year. And he also serves as a faculty associate in El Instituto, the Institute for Latino, Latina, Caribbean, and Latin American Studies. Irizarry took over as interim dean in March after Gladys Kersaint was named UConn's vice provost for strategic initiatives. Congratulations. Very nice. Ken, what's, uh, what's going on with you? We've got a new study from the UConn Rudd Center for Food Policy and Obesity, which has found that when food pantries provide color-coded nutrition information on their shelves, clients select significantly more healthy options and fewer unhealthy options. Uh, This is important because one in eight Americans are projected to experience food insecurity this year. Many people struggling with food insecurity also have high rates of diet-related chronic diseases like type 2 diabetes and high blood pressure. That's why it's critical for the charitable food system to provide the most nutritious food possible. To help identify options, the Supporting Wellness at Pantries system, known as SWAP, ranks food based on their levels of saturated fat, sodium, and added sugars. Each shelf is labeled with the words choose often, choose sometimes, or choose rarely, along with the corresponding colors green, yellow, or red, similar to a stoplight. The healthiest foods are also placed in the most prominent locations, so they're easy to locate. A doctoral student, Sarah McGee, in the Department of Human Development and Family Sciences, is the lead author of the study. And she says that the goal of the study was to test whether reorganizing the shelves and providing these messages would actually influence the products food pantry clients chose for the families. And they found by tracking the food selected by over 200 clients in the weeks before and after a pantry implemented the swap system that it worked. 
Findings indicated that after swap was implemented, the proportion of green food selected by clients increased by 11%, and the proportion of red food selected decreased by 7%. So that was good news. I think I need to put a red label on the ice cream in my freezer for for my own purposes. <laughs> I, uh, actually, I volunteer at a food pantry in Hartford, and uh, because of a previous Rudd Center study, we've been encouraging people to bring more, like, cooking oils and spices and flours and like things to actually make your own food. And, cool. Uh, that's been very well received. People actually like being able to get those kinds of elements to make their own meals. That's awesome. And you're such a good person, Tom. I'm not. It's just a community service thing. It's not a community <laughs> service. Doing community, community service makes you a good person. Yeah, it's, it's court ordered. It's not court ordered. <laughs> um, I started doing it because of the pandemic, but I really enjoy it. Yeah. Um, I have some news too. You do. Yeah. <laughs> People may or may not know there have been some changes uh, here at the administration of the University of Connecticut. President Tom Katsalaeus, who arrived here in 2019, is stepping down at the end of June. In the interim, he's going to be replaced by Dr. Andy Aguinobi, who is the head of UConn Health. This came out, and I think a lot of people saw this as pretty abrupt. This was uh, two weeks ago, maybe? Yeah, right uh, Right after we recorded our last episode. It was the day after we recorded our yes. last episode. That's right, yeah. <laughs> um, obviously, you know, this is probably not how anybody really sort of wanted things to shake out. It's a very difficult time to be working at a, at a university at that level, um, that high up. I mean, the pandemic, all these challenges and things have been very difficult to navigate for, for all kinds of university presidents around the country. I will say that I, I worked pretty closely with President Katsalaeus, and I think he's a very nice guy, and... Uh, enjoyed working with him. I know Dr. Aguinobi a little bit, and he's a very impressive guy, and I'm sure he'll be a, a good steward in the interim. Yeah, so that was kind of a surprising surprising bit of news for UConn Nation, but um, the institution moves on, right? <laughs> yep. We're in good hands. We'll, we'll keep on keeping on. Yeah. Uh, Dr. Aguinobi, uh, in addition to being a pediatrician, um, he's got a very interesting personal background. I don't know if people know. His father is Nigerian, his mother is Scottish, and he grew up in a little village in Scotland. And then spent a lot of time in Nigeria as well. So he's actually the first person of color to be the service president of UConn. There's a very good video interview with him on UConn today. There is. Yeah. All right. Well, why don't we uh, why don't we jump into uh, our feature presentations? And uh, one thing that uh, people know about UConn is uh, puppet arts. We're very big on that. But there's one name in the puppet arts world that is stands out as being particularly prominent. Ken, you're going to tell us a little bit about that person. Yes, but we're going to begin by thinking back to 1972 when President Richard Nixon made uh, his historic eight-day trip to Beijing to reestablish diplomatic relations with the People's Republic of China. And he was accompanied by a group of American officials that included, of course, National Security Advisor Henry Kissinger. One of the outcomes from that trip was the beginning of economic and cultural exchanges between the two nations. In 1994, the head of Yukon Puppet Arts, Bart Rockaburton Jr., traveled to China as part of an information service cultural tour for the U.S., and he was accompanied by a puppet named Mumford Maxwell Mole. The <laughs> visit ultimately led to China becoming a member of the Union Internationale de la Marionette, known as UNIMA, the international puppetry organization based in France and affiliated with UNESCO, which is the United Nations Education, Scientific, and Cultural Organization. 
18 years later, China hosted UNIMA's International Puppetry Congress and Festival. Professor Rocco Burton's role in China establishing an UNIMA National Center is only one aspect of the international puppetry work that led UNIMA USA to present him with a special citation as North America's Chancellor of Puppetry Education and Training for the 21st Century. Unima's special citation is an honor that very few individuals receive. He is just the 12th person so honored, and he joins the company of such people as his mentor Albrecht Roser, the German puppeteer credited with establishing puppetry as an international art form, and perhaps the most famous American puppeteer, Jim Henson, who created the Muppets. I spoke with Unima USA President Kathy Foley about the special citation and with the newly minted Chancellor Rockaburton about his first trip to China. The choice of the word chancellor was to show his bridge of education and building the careers of puppeteers all over the U.S., but also beyond because, of course, Bart was instrumental as China was getting more involved with puppetry. So, I mean, he did a lot of international work that put American puppetry in places where it had not been surfacing before. I got a call from the head of the O'Neill board at the time, Steve Woods, whose company was doing business in China. And he had just returned from a trip over there and called me and said, you know, I was talking to people and they don't have any idea what the American culture is. They say that they watch reruns of Dynasty and then watch news reports of drugs and guns on our streets. What happens in the middle? So he has the idea to create a a television program that would help show Chinese audiences what American culture was like. And uh, it was at that point where we started meeting. We, We met probably a dozen times, uh, which was great. He always bought lunch. (laughs) But he finally said, my people in China want to know what we're going to offer. And I said to him, Steve, I feel like the ugly American. I don't know what they have. I don't know what they want. How can I tell them what we can give them? And he said, well, then you need to go to China. Next thing I know, I'm going to China on spring break. I looked around, I was going to bring puppets with me and realized that I only had one puppet that I did by myself. Everything else was with two or three people. So I grabbed Mumford Mole from New England Puppet and Family Theater Series and brought him over. And in the course of a week, we met with politicians, we met with television production companies, we met with a lot of different people. And I always brought the mole out. And he grabbed the interests of people in a, in a way that we, we kept looking at each other going, what's going on here? And somewhere in my files, I have pictures of upper level Chinese politicians cradling this puppet like a baby. And then I started thinking, well, you know, when he laughed, he throws his head back and ha, 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 ha. And the Chinese at the time would laugh by covering their mouths. So I said, well, maybe that's it. He's just so bold. We decided that the mole was going to be a a center character in the TV project we we would develop. I insisted on working with a a Chinese artist as well. And it happened that Hua Hua Zhang was the lead performer in the China Puppet Arts Troupe. And we had met her and I said, let's see if we can bring her over to work on this with me. As she and and her Chinese handler were talking, we kept hearing the word Dabitsa, Dabitsa, anytime they'd talk about us. And I finally said, what does Dabitsa mean? And she said, Dabitsa means foreigner. Oh, 
Well, my character had to learn a little bit of Chinese for the TV project. And I came to learn that da meant big. And finally, I learned that pizza was nose. So their word for foreigner is big nose. <laughs> All right. Well, here I had brought this mole that was the incarnate big nose. I said, okay, that, that explains it. While I was there, I, I was meeting the generation of puppeteers pre-cultural revolution. I had brought a, a book by a, a Russian puppeteer, Obratsov, that he had gone to China in 48 as the, they were establishing the communist system. And in his book, he had lots of pictures of the troops at that time. Well, lo and behold, these were the people I was meeting. They were all signing my book. Right? <laughs> then I met Hua Huan. She was the first generation after the Cultural Revolution. And while I was there, I kept saying to the people I was meeting, you know, why isn't China a member of UNAMA, the world organization? Here you have the, the, the oldest documented puppetry in the world, and you're not a member of the world puppetry. And they would explain that it was a challenge with the government didn't want them joining international situations. But through Huahua, I found someone who was a go-getter. And so at the time, I would send her information by email, and it would take about 12 hours to get to her. She would go to the China Puppet and Shadow Arts Association, their national organization, and say, Bartra Joshua, Professor Bart, asked if we could do this. And they would respond to me in 12 hours. I would then send it on to France, who had their own internet system, and wait for four or five days to get a response if I got one at all. And then I'd instantly send it back to China. 12 hours later, I had a response. I sent it to France, waited another week or two. It got to a point where uh, I finally called a friend in Marseille and said, could you please go up to Charleville and kick him in the butt and get me answers? <laughs> Slowly, they became interested. Was it just clear to you that because puppetry existed elsewhere first, that it was natural to, to give that knowledge to students? Or was it just you enjoyed learning new techniques and lo looking deep into the history of your profession? Or well, all of the above? Know, I think it's all of the above. American puppetry is gleaned from all the traditions around the world. Early on in my career here, the upper administration said, we need more diversity in our classes. We need multicultural classes. And I instantly sent them my syllabus for shadow theater, where we started in China, China yeah. to Indonesia, uh, you know, Malaysia, Cambodia, Greece, Turkey, France, Germany. I said, how am I doing? Said, yeah, yeah, okay. Huawa <laughs> Zhang became the first MFA puppet art student from China. She went on to start Visual Expressions, which is a nonprofit performing arts company in Philadelphia, which uses Asian and Western puppet art to explore universal themes and ideas using theatrical performances, installations, and educational programs. She performs around the world. UConn, of course, is the only university in the United States offering a bachelor's degree and two master's degrees, an MFA or an MA in puppetry. And alumni have worked in television and stage productions such as Sesame Street, Crash and Bernstein, Lion King, Avenue Q, Little Shop of Horrors, and Frozen on Ice, among others. It's very impressive, though. The I mean, anything you've heard about puppets, puppetry is a is a very niche art form, and we we've been involved. UConn people are are in it. Yeah, be sure to go to uh, today.ucon.edu and check out Ken's story about this. There's a lot of good detail in that and some good pictures. 
I just want to say I love Bart Rockerburton's voice also. I remember when he did one of our holiday video voiceovers, the, oh, the Huskies yeah. at Heart one. It was so lovely. Yeah, he's got a great performing, narrating voice. Yes, very good. Very warm. And Julie, for our next feature, we've got another Brave Space feature. Is that right? Yes, we do. We are closing out our run of 85, 86 episodes with one last installment of the Brave Space series, which will come back when we come back. And just a reminder, that's where we listen to diverse perspectives on what the university and society can do better and are doing well in the diversity, equity, and inclusion realm. Today, we have UConn Magazine editor Lisa Stepak in conversation with student Sage Phillips. We've mentioned Phillips recently as she was honored with both the Truman and Udall scholarships in the past couple of months. The political science and human rights major, a Penobscot woman of the Wabanaki people, is the founding president of the Native American and Indigenous Students Association here at UConn and serves as the student coordinator for Native American cultural programs. She hopes that through her efforts to expand the Native American cultural programs to become a cultural center, she then paves the way for UConn as a land-grant institution to work towards reparations for Connecticut Native youth in the form of tuition remission. Today we're talking to rising senior Sage Phillips, who has been a champion of Indigenous rights from the moment she stepped foot on campus. She's a native of Old Town, Maine, a political science and human rights major who has been recognized recently with two highly prestigious national awards, the Truman and Udall Scholarships. Sage, only a handful of students across the country get those awards, literally a handful. Why do you think they chose you? Well, thank you for the wonderful introduction. I'm not fully sure. I think I'm still trying to process that myself and just let it sink in a little bit. But I think since I've come to UConn, I've come in with a pretty loud voice. And sometimes it's a voice that people don't necessarily want to hear. But I think I've kind of made it my job to make sure they do hear it. So I don't know. I guess they they must have seen something. I think my applications and my passions are pretty unique. And especially being at UConn, um, I don't think I've come across anyone with the same particular interests and goals that I have. I think most of all, it was all for my ancestors. And I think my ancestors were with me and that that really pulled me through the competitions. You've mentioned that it's your father and grandfather in particular who give you that sense of heritage that's so important. How does that sync up? with the things that you've accomplished? I think I I really center myself in community, especially from a young age, just being raised in the Penobscot culture and among the Wabanaki people, you always go at things with a sense of community and selflessness. And that's just how I've been raised. So these scholarships really, I guess my name is on them, but they're not for me. They're for the future generations and ancestors to come. That's what my work is really centered in. I think my grandfather has really instilled that in me. I've kind of grown up learning everything I know about my culture and heritage is from him and my dad. You know, they've always told me you're here because of the ancestors and they're the reason why you have the opportunities you do. So carry that with you. And I feel like not a lot of people um, have the understanding. So My culture has definitely given me that. You told me a while ago that you you knew even before coming to stores that you would have that loud voice and that you would want to create more opportunities for Native American students. One of the things you did was found the Native American and Indigenous Students Association. What has that done? So NASA was born out of NACP 
Um, and NACP is the Native American Cultural Programs. They knew we had a lot of students who identified as Indigenous. So there's, you know, there's the distinction between Native American and Indigenous, which I won't get into, but we needed a space where those students felt comfortable. And NACP wasn't necessarily completely inclusive to them, or at least it is, but they didn't feel like it was just because our title lacked it. So NASA was born and we had students coming from all over and it was amazing. The The response was just unreal and unprecedented. And NASA is just a place where we can all gather and share culture, traditions, history, but also we welcome allies and people who just want to learn a little bit more about where we come from and our, our very diverse backgrounds. So this year was our first year with NASA. It's, it's very new. And at the end of it all, our students came forward and they said, thank you for giving us a place on campus where we can feel comfortable and sharing who we are. And we can also just be in community. I mean, the biggest thing about being Indigenous to me anyways is having a community where you can you can share what you know and what maybe what you don't know. A lot of us are still reclaiming our cultures and our Indigenous identities. And these students were just very appreciative for the opportunity to have a space where they can do that, especially at a place like UConn. So NASA is really, it's been something this past year, and I'm glad that it, it was successful and will definitely be moving forward this fall. Do you think it makes sense to maybe share with us the difference between Native American and Indigenous? So Native American, you know, the term American, a lot of the times refers to the people Indigenous to North America. For instance, we have people in NASA who are Taino or Embera, and they don't use the term Native American because, you know, they're not from North America or their peoples aren't from North America. So a lot of the times you find they prefer Indigenous, which is more comprehensive. But I will say anytime that you refer to us, you'll find that we prefer our specific tribe or our specific clan or people. It's the most respectful and it makes us feel appreciated because these terms are kind of generalized. A lot of the times people have this misconception that we're just Native Americans across the country, but really our cultures are very diverse across each tribe, each people. And just one recommendation, you know, I would never feel offended if someone asked, well, what is your tribe? And then they referred to me as that. That's like the most respect you can give. So I hope that clears that up a bit, but it's just, it's really a preference thing and where you come from. Oh, that's very helpful. You're Penobscot, right? Yep. You're working on a project right now, gathering data about the seven local tribes that Yukon obtained its land from. What would it mean for Yukon to provide reparations for those whose land it occupies? So the, the project itself is assessing the land Yukon occupies, but also how Yukon came about this land. We're going through the Morrill Act and data, allotment data, you know, just parcels. So we're also looking into the tribes that were affected when, for instance, all of Yukon came about because of the land theft from tribes in the West. And they were allotted this thing called scrip. And that's how they, you know, they exchanged for the land. And that's how Yukon's here now. So the project's very wide scoping across tribes in, in this country. But reparations, I talked about it a lot in my Truman policy proposal, actually. And I think the the first way we can come about it is tuition waivers. And, you know, we need to get more Native and Indigenous students into higher education. Start with tuition waivers. I come from Maine and the University of Maine does just that. So it's not impossible. You know, it, it, it happens elsewhere. I was hoping you could talk just a little bit 
about the efforts you're also involved in to ban American Indian sports mascots in Connecticut. And that's important to you personally, right? Yeah. So I attended a predominantly white high school and they used to be the Indians and it was changed to the Coyotes. And that happened 20 years before I even entered. And I, st- I still live the, the negative repercussions that these mascots carry. There, there's this big mural left behind in the gym and kids would pick at me and poke at me and say, well, you don't look like that. So you're not, you're not native yourself. And I think that really speaks to what these mascots do to us, especially as Native youth. It's now our duty to reclaim a lot of our culture. And that's just that's harmful to the whole process. People told me, I wish we were still the Indians. We'd have so much more school spirit at football games. And I said, well, what does that look like? They said, just imagine us with like tomahawks and we could wear headdresses to the football games. And my my response every time is, would you have any other race or ethnicity, any other group of people as your mascot? Would that be deemed okay? And everyone always just kind of, you know, they get kind of quiet. And I'm like, so what makes it okay for us? And they're like, well, you know, we're, it already happened. Like, yeah, but we're trying to undo that. You have to listen to the people who, who actually belong to these groups and value and respect their voices. Maine became the first um, state in the country to, ban the use of native mascots. And I hold that really close to me because my tribe put a lot of effort, a lot of work into that. Cousins of mine really invested their time in making sure that this happened. And I wasn't necessarily super involved in Maine, but when I came to Yukon, I I knew I wanted to carry on that fight myself. I actually just submitted a letter to, I think it was North Haven. They still have the mascot. So I submitted a letter this morning, actually to try to guide them in the right direction, which I've written <laughs> quite a few letters now, but it's an important fight. And it's it's a fight that I think is valuable to us as youth and just demolishing stereotypes and misconceptions as we go. From your perspective, what is UConn doing well when it comes to diversity, equity, and inclusion? And what do we need to do better? I think the students do a really good job at holding the university accountable. And I think that's where the error is. You know, sometimes the university responds well to the requests and the voices of students. But at the end of the day, it shouldn't be the responsibility of the students to be holding the university accountable. If they're going to rely on the students to hold them accountable, I think they need to invest in the students and really listen to what they have to say. And it, it can't be done in a form of damage control. You know, I think a lot of the times... We have these bias incidents happen on campus and the university sends out an email. And to me and others that I've been in conversation with, that looks like a form of damage control. Recently, the university has done an okay job at holding students accountable in these incidents. But I think for me, it all comes back to community and the university needs to invest in student communities and really build relations with them. It just comes down to investing in student voices, like I said, and hopefully the university finds itself at a point where they can hold themselves accountable and not have the students do so. Thank you. We're calling this interview series Brave Space. Who do you admire as a model for bravery? I have two, if that's okay. Of course. Uh, First and foremost, my grandfather, 
who just exemplifies everything I want to be ever. He has used his voice in so many different spaces advocating for our people, and that's not easy. And he makes it look easy. And to me, that's bravery to be able to put yourself in front of the federal government, especially as, as a Penobscot individual, is, is a big step. And it, it takes a lot of courage in my eyes. My other role model in that sense is my cousin, Molly and Dana, who is actually our ambassador for the tribe. She led the mascot fight and she experienced a lot of discrimination and prejudice and really trauma in that fight. And she came out stronger than ever. And she still carries this work. She knows the risk and it doesn't seem to bother her. And I think I I try to carry that level of courage with me. She's just, she's a champion for our tribe truly. And I can only hope to be half of that one day. She is so brave in so many different arenas, but the mascot one, especially. I think they both would be extremely proud of you right now. And we all are. You make UConn proud. Thank you so much for doing this. And it's always a pleasure to talk to you. So take care. Have a great summer. Thank you. You can learn more about Sage Phillips in the upcoming edition of UConn Magazine, which will be in mailboxes and at magazine.uconn.edu in just a few weeks. Very nice. She's a very impressive student. She is. As the editor of UConn Today, I've seen her name quite a bit. So for our our final pre-hiatus, Tom's Oh, man. I, I figured instead of ending on an ending, I would... And on a beginning. Look at you. We're not, we're not ending. We're perhaps beginning a new chapter in UConn 360. And so I wanted to journey all the way back to September of 1881 and talk about what life was like in the first semester in the history of our institution, which at the time, of course, was not the University of Connecticut. It was Storrs Agricultural School. Now, uh, interestingly, the uh, first semester was actually supposed to start on September 19th. But it was postponed because of the assassination of President James Garfield. Wow. So they, uh, because of sort of national alarm, he didn't actually die right then. He actually died months later. And side note, he was basically killed by his doctor, uh, not not by the assassin. <laughs> I didn't know that. Yeah, his doctor was a complete incompetent and um, didn't really know how to treat him and would like would make uh, incisions and try to fish the bullet out with his bare hands oh my without God. washing because he believed that washing your hands actually uh, removed sort of uh, helpful, not germs, because he didn't know what germs were, but like sort of helpful, I don't know, dirt. or something. I mean, he, he basically <laughs> thought that washing hands was a bad idea if you were a surgeon. Oh. And so President Garfield I'm glad we live now, really, as, with as many questions as we have about Oh, science. yeah. <laughs> yeah. He, um, he actually died in New Jersey, President Garfield. Uh, I've been to the spot where he died. It's now just somebody's house, and there's a little plaque out front. Huh. I went there and the guy was out mowing his lawn and I asked him if people came by to look at the a spot where President Garfield was killed. And he said, no, not very often. So, uh, <laughs> You're the first. <laughs> there you go. Uh, but anyway, back to UConn. They postponed uh, the start of classes. This was the very first semester. There were 12 students from all around Connecticut and the 12 corners of Connecticut. <laughs> and, um, they had uh, one building. It was a 50-room orphanage that had been built for Civil War orphans that was later known as Old Whitney, from a uh, Willimantic Chronicle report of the time. The house is large and admirably arranged for a boarding school, and the basement is a schoolroom fitted with desk and blackboard. The laundry and furnace are also in the basement. On the first floor are parlors, family sitting room, kitchen, large dining room, and lavatory. 
The second floor has two or three large chambers and some dozen or more small bedrooms beside an attic in the L. This, so it's, it sounds more like Harry Potter than I think. Yeah. What, like, uh, Thank goodness for newspapers. Support your local news. We need this this news in 200 years. Um, it was roughly, I learned from this trivia that I put together for commencement, based on your trivia questions, that it was located around where CLAS, the Austin building is. Is that correct? Yep. It was... Um, it looked it faced across uh, 195 toward Horsebarn Hill, and um, was 195 then, like a dirt road, or did it not? Was it not a road? It was a dirt road. Yeah, okay. it was there. Um, and actually, the view was obscured by then a huge. Apparently, there was a, a row of about 40 maple trees wow. uh, in front of Horsebarn Hill, which are long gone. And uh, the article further went on to say, for a taxpayers of Connecticut anxious as to what uh, what their money was going to, <laughs> in, instead of filling the young men up with theoretical book learning. <laughs> And a great quantity of science, which may not be immediately available at a cost beyond the means of most parents, it is proposed to have a school at which the cost of tuition will be merely nominal, $25 a year, <laughs> and the price of board very low, not over $3 a week. Ample chance will be given for the boys to do extra work to pay, so that industrious and earnest students can earn enough money for their expenses as they go. Back then, there was no president. There was a principal, Solomon Mead, and he served there for about two years before he was replaced by our first president. The daily routine for students in that first semester, they were awakened at 6.30 every morning by a bell, breakfast at 7, and mandatory prayers immediately following breakfast. Lectures uh, in, in, in classroom learning ran from 8 a.m. to noon with uh, what they called dinner at 12.15. That was, we followed the British convention of calling lunch dinner and dinner supper back then. Okay. And then everyone had to engage in farm work from 2 p.m. to 5 p.m., Supper at 6 p.m. and then studying from 7 to 9, lights out at 9. That's a long day. And it was not a post-secondary school. So, like, who was who was coming here? What types this, of... So this was basically people who otherwise would have been in high school. And, in fact, some of them, after they finished their two years uh, at Storrs Agricultural School, went on to get high school diplomas, which back then were pretty rare. Most people did not finish high school. Huh. Um, so high school back then was sort of a, an intermediate stage between primary education and college, which it is now, but it's, it wasn't mandatory back then. So did they get any sort of certificate or diploma from Storrs Agricultural School? They did. They would get a certificate that they had completed the, the course in farming. Okay. Um, and so it was like, literally, they would learn tillage, draining, manuring, irrigation, culture and handling of the various field, garden, and orchard crops of New England. I mean, they basically That's... learned how to run farms. Yeah. Valuable information. Uh, and they also learned... Um, some things that would, uh, a little more theoretical, like agricultural physics, uh, that kind of thing. Sort of more scientific, more theoretical knowledge that, however, would come in handy for, you know, measuring and geometry and, and arithmetic, things like that for farming. They also learned how to do uh, carpentry. Um, well, you, and you've talked had, about the, the the work that they had to do previously in some of yes, your Yes, they had to do manual labor every day, every single day, except Sunday. Yeah, but so that was the uh, the first semester, really the first year. And it was all men it, back then, right? It was all men. It, the first one would arrive actually before it was legal for them to attend school at, at a college at UConn. But uh, Benjamin Coons, who was the president, uh, had come from Oberlin, which was a co-ed school, and he was a big believer in co-ed education. So some young women said they wanted to attend there, and he said, fine. What year about was that? It was, uh, I believe, 1891. Okay, so not too not too long. Yeah. So after the first uh, semester, the, a, a Chronicle reporter came and, and had a, a meal with them in December of 1881. And reported uh, that it was, quote, a pleasant household in a commodious and sightly location. <laughs> the principal, Solomon Mead, sits decorously at the head as paterfamilias, cheerily yet orderly and bountifully dealing out the viands. 
The table is also graced by Professor Armsby and wife and Professor Coons, while the dozen young men in attendance upon the school fill up the flanks of the stout table in the cheerful dining room. And then he went on and interviewed some of the, uh, the students, did, didn't quote them by name, but uh, said that two of them undertook to interview the writer and volunteered the remarks that we have a first-rate board here and good times. One young man told me he had gained 14 pounds in weight since coming. So the freshman 15, <laughs> even That's then, where it originated. Where, yep. Even then. Uh, That's great. So yeah, that was the first met. It sounded a little bit more like just being in a big like farm family than uh, yeah. what we'd associate with the college experience now. But I it think sounds nice. Change. Yeah, it does. Well, I like the fact they called it commodious, yes. meaning that they had furniture. <laughs> right. Yeah. And a comfortable place to live, not that they had a commode. <laughs> right. And it was you know, it was all dirt roads. I mean there's if you go to the old main account, there's pictures of like North Eagleville Road, which was a road back then, but it was a dirt road. Everything was just and in the spring it was mud. I mean you'd just be stranded there. Yeah, much. think about how, how far off the beaten path we are right now and imagine back in yeah. dirt road times. <laughs> yeah, like we we complain about having to get off, you know, eighty four and then drive. Drive ten minutes, ten minutes right? Well, they used to get off at the depot, uh, the train depot. Yeah, the other train. No, long, right. no longer there. And that would have been the... far in like a horse and buggy, I assume. It would have taken a little bit. Yeah, and there was a, students actually ran a business where they would run horse and buggy between the train station and campus and for, you know, a, coins or whatever the nominal fee was. <laughs> that's cool. So, yeah, so that's uh, that's how uh, we got our start. You know, that, that meme on Twitter, you know, how it started, yeah. how it's going. Yeah. <laughs> uh, People know how it's going. Have we like, done that that meme with a picture from the beginning? I think we should. I think we should too. Yeah. We'll talk to Jason about that. <laughs> um, Very nice. I like that story. Thanks, Tom. So that's our that's our eighty sixth episode, and we're gonna we're gonna put things on uh, up on blocks for a little while. I'm sad. I'm gonna. I want to tell people why I at least partially why we're we're doing this. Yeah, I think we should. Why not? Yeah. So people- I- I'm expecting a baby. Yay! In about six weeks, so I'm going to be out for quite a bit. That's uh, that's great news. It is. It's exciting. Baby Bartuka to arrive baby Bartuka. soon. Bartuka, we don't know what it is, boy or girl. Going to be a surprise to us all. I'll have to see if there's some uh, Yukon 360 baby gear. Yeah, I think have, we need to make a onesie or something. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I think that's, that's doable. Totally. Um. So yeah, so we're going on hiatus for for good reasons. We're not going on hiatus because like uh, we we're all doing each other or something. <laughs> all right. Well, thank you everybody. If you've enjoyed uh, listening to Yukon Three Sixty, first of all, thank you very much for listening. It's been great. We've had a we've had a really good time doing this. Again, I, I'm talking about like it's over. It's not really. I know it's not over, but it's going to be a while. It's going to be. Several it is. It's months. like it's like the last day of school and summer yeah. vacation coming. You know, like you're going to be back in the fall, but there's still that sort of wistful. We had a good time, didn't we? Yeah, and we've been doing this for. A long three time years. straight. Over yeah. three years, yeah. Pretty good. Um, yeah, so thank you very much for listening to us. You can find us on Twitter at Yukon Podcast or at main underscore old. I'll post some pictures from as early as I can find them uh, in Yukon history to coincide with Tom's History Corner. Uh, check out today.yukon.edu for all the latest news on Yukon. Uh, Julie, is there anything you would like to plug for people? Is there? Would you like to give them like an Amazon wish list for your... <laughs> No, we've been very lucky. We've gotten everything we could possibly need. Um, I'm on Twitter at Julie Bartuka. You can read the latest health journal at healthjournal.yukon.edu. Stay and? tuned to Yukon all summer. And at 91.7 WHUS in stores, you can listen to the prior episodes of the Yukon 360 podcast, which we have specially curated for this summer vacation period. 
You got and 360 then, classic. We prefer to yes, think of classic. Uh, and then I don't know if we're going to still be on Saturday nights, but the good music show will be on WHUS at some point after uh, the summer gets going. And uh, you never know what you're going to hear. <laughs> did you do your Bob Dylan episode? I did my Bob Dylan episode. And in fact, by, after this is aired, you there will have been a special Sergeant Pepper's episode. Pour myself with my coffee mug. Excuse me. <laughs> <laughs> I have one of those coasters that keeps it hot, and I just put the cup on my leg, and it was it was quite hot. See, these are the things you don't hear <laughs> right. normally on the air. Right. Oh, I'll keep that but, in. <clears throat> but but every year, I, I I when the first week of June arrives, I. Talk about Sgt. Pepper being released in June of uh, 1967, which then changed how recording was done. All right. Thanks, everybody. Normally, this is where I'd say we'll see you in a fortnight, but that's not true this time. Um, we will, <laughs> see however, you in several months. <laughs> see you down the road. <laughs>